All right, well, we've got a couple of announcements to go through. First of all, I'll be leaving in the morning and going to uh, Friends of Israel conference later in the week, and Wayne House will be here. Dr. House will be here Thursday and Sunday covering the pulpit for me. Then uh, plan to be involved if you have the opportunity with for the Fort Bend uh, County Fair Evangelism event. There'll be some uh, a weekly one-hour trainings, 9 to 10 a.m., Zoom meetings uh, through September uh, every Saturday from 9 to 10. And Jeff Phipps will be going over some things so people are prepared. And I'd encourage you that even if you don't feel like you want to actually talk to anybody or say anything, to go out there and just sit there and watch and and, and learn something uh, because that's always helpful, as I've been saying, to get different kinds of experiences. Also, the church picnic's coming up uh, Saturday, October 21st. Now, a couple of um, missionary uh, things that we need to mention. One is from David Ibrahim. We support him and his wife. He's a, uh, I think he's a fifth generation, fourth or fifth generation pastor in Pakistan. And uh, there has been some horrible stuff. I've heard this. Some of you may have heard of Faisal John. And um, there are there's a city called Jaranwala, and there have been um, more than 20 or 25 churches burned to the ground there and several uh, individuals' homes. And then this spread to a couple of other uh, cities also where these uh, radical uh, Muslim groups are going through and just uh, going from church to church and, and uh, burning them to the ground. And um, and so he sent me a number of pa- um, of uh, pictures, and if I really knew and had time to go through all this, I'd be sending out a letter, but I don't. Um, and this is a very radical movement. It's referred to by the abbreviations TLP, which is uh, uh, Tariki Lebek, Pakistan. So that's um, that's what's going on there. The other thing is that. Uh, Jim Myers uh, sent me an email I got yesterday that says, we're off to a great start in Brazil. I've done six lessons in two days in three places. Great response. And last night, a woman got saved after hearing the gospel. And then he goes on and um, he makes a couple of other comments and um, but things are going well. And he said tonight, which would have been last night, he says, I start the heavy, heavy lifting with four hours of teaching per day for the next 10 days. What a job. I love it. So he is doing well. So pray for his strength, his stamina, his health, as well as Phyllis's, and that things go well. We had um, a large number of Phyllis's book uh, printed down there, as well as um, the Promise Book, and they were translated into Portuguese, printed and mailed out and distributed. So pray that all of that has a long-lasting impact, that God, of course, claiming the promise that God will bring to completion the plans that he has, and uh, always he will bless his word. So pray for those things. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. So before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And then um, 
and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful we have you to come to. We're thankful for the promises we have in your word that we can rely upon them and we can trust in them. And Father, we are thankful that that even though we see these horrible things taking place, not just in Pakistan, but in places like Nigeria, Sudan, a number of other places where uh, Satan's disciples are going out there and they are just, uh, their hate for those who are believers in Jesus Christ is just uh, demonstrable, and they are uh, murdering, killing, and all sorts of horrible violence. And we just pray for uh, the believers in those areas that they would have pastors that would be uh, strong enough to give them your word to sustain them during this horrible time, and that you would provide for them. And thankful that we have an opportunity to uh, support the ministry of David and Sarah while they're there. Pray for their safety and uh, all of the different tools that they have to aid and uh, help uh, those who are uh, being victimized in this situation. Now, Father, we pray for us as a body of believers that we may be faithful to you, faithful to your word, that as we study tonight, we can begin to see the foundations that are laid for us in the early chapters of Genesis and and how they're so frequently attacked and why it is so important to take you at your word and not try to accommodate whatever the latest fads or trends are in any culture at any time. And we pray that uh, you'll just give us an opportunity to teach this to our kids, our grandkids, teach in prep school and uh, teach, teach it and communicate it to, to others that they can come to a grasp of of the totality of the scripture and we pray this in Christ's name amen sometimes it gets frustrating when you're a pastor because you need to teach about 5000 different things all at the same time especially if you're dealing with brand new baby believers because they need to learn how to live the spiritual life they need to come to have a better understanding of the gospel that they believed in and they need to just understand the bible they need to have a framework. So there, there's so much that's involved. And a lot of times baby believers are so busy with whatever they've been committed to in the past that showing up to church ten times during a week is just too much. Five times during a week seems too much because we're all so busy. And I remember a time when many, many people would go to church five, six, seven, eight times almost every night of the week. And things change. We live in a different world than we did 40 years ago or 50 years ago or 60 years ago. Uh, I was um, one of my courses in seminary where we were talking about different cultural things and different kinds of, it was a missions course and dealing with different culture. And uh, the professor went through something he was studying and it had to do with, with understanding the changes that had taken place in America over the last uh, century. And it was what, what I thought was fascinating was it we we don't realize how the culture around us defines what we can do as churches. So up until the twenties, this country was primarily rural, 
And in a rural situation, you're, a lot of families had lots of kids. My first church, I had two or three women who were one of 14, 16, 18, 20 kids. And they were workers. You know, you couldn't hire people to come work your farm, so you just had a bunch of kids and started training, training them when they were young. So the whole family unit was a, was a business unit on, on the farm. And so a family of four, mom and dad and, and two workers would, um, would be able to have a certain level of, of income. We're not going to define how much it was that changes, but, but a certain lifestyle. That was in about 1917, the end of World War One. In 19, in the mid 60s, 65 to about 74, a single dad working only 40 hours a week could achieve the same level of lifestyle as that family of four, all four of them working in 1917. And the tax code was such that if you had a family and you had children and you were paying on a mortgage, you probably, you'd have to make an inordinate amount of money to pay any taxes. It was family friendly and marriage friendly. By 1980, thanks to Jimmy Carter and high inflation, echoes of what's happening today, is that it took mom and dad now both working. So in 1970, it's dad working 40 hours to achieve a certain lifestyle and have a certain income. Ten years later, it took mom and dad both working 10, I mean, both working 60 hours a week to achieve that same lifestyle. So in the 50s and 60s and 70s, when mom was staying at home and dad was working 40 hours a week, I mean, that was my family. My dad left at 7.30 every morning, took the bus downtown, worked downtown, was home by 5.30, ate dinner, had plenty of time to leave and go to Bible class at night. You're not exhausted because my mother uh, always t- took care of, you know, all the household cho- chores and everything, so none of that stuff had to be done. But then by the 1980s, you had so many people who the dad would leave at 5.30 in the morning and he would come back to church at Bible class and he'd eat dinner in the car and the, then the family would go to Bible class five nights a week, which was almost unrealistic because you're trying to put a schedule on people that's no longer, that's no longer viable because the culture changed. And now, and, and what happened when you had regular, regular, uh, Bible churches who had Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, they got rid of Sunday night and Wednesday night. They might have home Bible studies, but they just had one service on Sunday morning. And I had a church that I took over that had started that way, and all I had to do was teach for 30 minutes on Sunday. I never taught for 30 minutes on Sunday morning. I know you can believe that. But it's so important to understand how the culture has changed, and it changes because of what happens politically. So we need to encourage people because we can't feed ourselves or be fed spiritually on a diet of one meal a week or two meals a week. It needs to be part of our daily routine, uh, listening to Bible classes. There's, when we started, 20 
five years ago this summer. We limited everybody to six cassette tapes. Did you hear that? We didn't have live streaming. We didn't have video. We didn't have anything but just audio tapes. And they could only order six because I taught twice on Sunday morning and once on Wednesday night, and I just started. So we didn't have a backlog of 3,000 hours of material. But I got a question yesterday from uh, a young man, and he said, I'm just not, I'm just not really settled right now. I mean, I don't know what's, what's wrong in my life. I said, and I know, I know him fairly well, and I said, you need to focus on your spiritual life. You've got a great career. You're doing this. You're doing that. But you need to get back to where the Word of God is at the center of everything that you're doing. And that means you've got to devote a certain amount of time every week reading your Bible, praying, memorizing Scripture, listening to Bible class, and being associated with, with other believers. So all of that is very important. And one of the things you have to learn is not only the basic uh, basic skills of the spiritual life, but we have to learn our tool. We have to learn the Bible, and we have to learn how it's put together. And that doesn't happen overnight. You can't take a pill, go through a drive through window, or go down to Walmart and pick up a 10-page book that will give you everything you need to know about the Bible. So we have to spend time. And um, th- this, this uh, curriculum we're working through has 52 lessons. I bet it's going to end up being close to 90 or 100 before we get done. Um, the quacks teach this. They will teach each lesson. I, I get because they send me the links to all their teaching, and it's, it takes them three hours to go through a lesson. So I'm trying to, to go through a lesson in two hours just to give everybody the overview. So uh, it's important. We have to understand that. So we're getting into our fourth lesson, which deals with the three responses um, that so-called Christians had to the pagan worldview. We've studied and looked at the pagan worldview the last uh, several weeks. And the the thing we're going to begin with today is three ways that Christians responded. Now, when we come back next time, we're going to look at the correct way that Christians should be responding uh, to the intrusion of this pagan worldview. So we have gone through this. I'm not going to go through it tonight because I've taken a little extra time on the introduction, but we need to go through this. I've clarified some things at the end where we go through and we have the creation and the fall and the flood and the Tower of uh, Babel, and then we have the call of Abraham, and then we have the uh, Exodus, and we have the um, we have the Exodus and the, uh, then the giving of the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. And then there's the conquest. And then they establish the kingdom. Well, we have a crown for that kingdom, but the question was at the end we have another kingdom. So we have the, the kingdom established. Then there's a split. You have the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and God exiles them. They partially return. That's the whole Old Testament. I did that in about 20 or 30 seconds. And then you get into the New Testament, you have the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, and then you have his his death and his burial and his resurrection, and then his ascension, and then 10 days after that, he sends the Holy Spirit, and you have the birth of the church. And we're in the church age, 
And I've been hearing since I was a little boy, which was a long time ago, that we're very close to the end. And we're closer than we were when I was a little boy, but we may not be all that as close as some people think we are. So uh, Christ will return in the air at the rapture, and then there's going to be, look on the, up here on the chart, we have the seven-year tribulation, then Jesus returns to the earth to establish his kingdom. That lasts for a thousand years, and then there will be the great white throne judgment. And that's the whole scope of, of history. And when you learn that, then when you read the Bible, you have, as it were, as you have in a closet, you have the appropriate um, coat hooks that you can use to hang the different details on. So that's what we've been uh, working on. We've gone through the creator-creature distinction in the first part, then the divine institutions and uh, the angelic revolt, God's creation of spirit beings, then the angelic revolt, and we're looking at the fall now and the consequences of the fall, which is the source of paganism. So the first lesson we looked at focused on God's creation and the divine institutions. The second lesson focused on uh, wrong views of creation, pagan views. Every, there's, there's hundreds of false views of creation and only one correct one. And so that is the foundation. Uh, uh, all these false views are the foundations of many different wrong worldviews. And we defined worldview as a way people look at life and try to make sense of the world around them. Why is there suffering? Why is there death? Is there life after death? How do I know right from wrong? Uh, what kind of government should we have? How do we organize ourselves socially? All of that falls within the framework of a, of a worldview. Third lesson looked at what happened to the world and to the divine institutions, how individual responsibility got distorted, how marriages got distorted because when individuals are not being uh, resp responsible in their choices, then that leads to problems in the marriage. When there's problems in the marriage, there's problems in the family. When there's problems in the family, it often causes problems in the marriage and goes back to other things. So lesson three looked at all of those things, and we're now in lesson four looking at the three responses that the Christi so-called Christian world gave to the influx of this new pagan worldview, especially evolution. So we saw the contrast between the biblical worldview, which is based on the creator-creature distinction that God is not like us. God says, uh, my ways are not your ways and your thoughts are not my thoughts. God is very different. But in many ways we can understand him, there are analogous ways to understand him because we are created in his image and likeness. So it, it, the biblical worldview is built on the fact that God is both personal and infinite. He is the ruler of his creation and the ultimate authority, whereas the pagan worldview always goes back to a continuity of being that there's no ultimate creator. Everything just happened uh, by chance. There was something eternal, and it was either a gas or it was matter, but something was there, but no mind. And then everything is just governed by impersonal fate and chance. And so the ultimate, the ultimate deity, the ultimate determiner of everything is yourself.
How does it make you feel? That's where we are today in spades. So we look at these two curricula. We've got the main interlocked curricula, as I keep saying. I'm only going to do this through Lesson 9 because that's only how far they've gone with the children. But I want us to be able to reverse engineer what they did to go from what's on the left, which is geared to a mid-teenager, to what they did with younger kids down to about 9 or 10. And so in both sets, they review the kinds of death. Now, I have... Uh, I have in front of me here the, um, the, the, the notes on the children's edition. And they always start that with the parents' preparation. They give an item checklist, things that you should have as you get ready to uh, teach it. And for this lesson, you, they have created these timeline pictures that we see back, back here. So you have those, and you give those to the kids in like three-by-five cards or maybe full-page pictures and have the kids put them in the right order. And that helps them to to learn learn the order. So have the 15 timeline pictures. We would have 19 timeline uh, pictures. Um, and then they need something for gluing, sticky tape or blue tack or a glue stick, and a small prize for each uh, child in the class. Uh, something that you can come up with. And each child should have a Bible and a timeline chart, and there's a worksheet that they have put together. Now, you go through, and it gives you the lesson, and then there are, in blue type, there are uh, instructions as to how to teach it. So basically what what they emphasize in the is to review the three kinds of death. What are the three kinds of death? that we see in Genesis 2, 2 and 3. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. So you go through that and then just uh, talk about how the divine institutions was was uh, was affected. And they, they have a memory verse, which I think is very important with children, is have them memorize scriptures. They get older, have them memorize uh maybe passages, Romans 8. And um, Genesis 3.15, they have them uh, memorize this, where God says, and they use a New Living Translation, I will cause hostility between you, speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now that is that verse is called the Proto-Evangelium, uh, because it's the first hint of God's plan of salvation. So that's a great, great memory verse to start with and help them understand that. And then in this one, they, they, they have the kids have these single word cards and then they, and they show you how they're done and you can print them out and they have all the tools to do that where you look at these various cards and the, uh, statement, and they have to decide whether it's true or false. So the first card says, God made the universe, the earth, the animals, and the plants for mankind to, joy, to, uh, to enjoy. Is that true or false? Come on. That's true. You've been taught better than that. Am I going to have to go back to one-syllable words? Okay, that's true. How do you know it's true? 
That's right. The Bible says so. That's right. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's very simple. Okay, the Bible says so. What What about Eve when the serpent came along and said, God's wrong, you're not going to die? What happened? She thinks she can figure it out on her own. She doesn't go to God. So we should remember that, that, that we don't want to, when we hear somebody teach something that contradicts the Bible, that we need to go to somebody who knows the Bible and has studied the Bible to find out what the answers are and not just automatically, wow, that, that's right. That guy's got multiple degrees. He went to college and has a doctorate and he, he works in a science lab, so he must be right. So I've got to believe him and not go to creation scientists who've been studying this stuff for, for decades. So they have all these kinds of cards, so you can have kind of a, a, a game with them. What's true, what's false, and how do you know uh, the difference? So they go through a, a whole bunch of these and give you lots of great little teaching tools um, in this lesson. So that's very important because the key point is how did Christians respond to the assaults of pagan worldview? How did Christians respond? How did Eve respond? We just covered that. Eve decided she knew enough on her own in her little finite mind to make a decision as to whether God was telling the truth or not. And so with the with the children's edition, it's, well, it's trying to decide which is true or false. So they have various activities uh, for that, and then we're going to get in. This is basically the outline of the lesson. But for the kids, it's broken down more simply. It's Satan uses lies to trick people and to deceive them. And so we have to be able to spot the tricks, able to spot the deceptions, able to spot the lies, and to always uh, reinforce that the Bible tells the truth, God tells the truth. When there's a contradiction, the one who's contradicting God or the Bible is always going to be wrong. So we come to the first part of this lesson and what we looking what we're looking at here is how Christians, so-called Christians, some of them were, some of them were, were not, uh, but Christianity, how did they respond to pagan views? And so we're faced with a choice. We're faced with the choice that on the one hand, the Bible says that God created the world. Uh, the Bible says that God is the ultimate determiner of right and wrong. The Bible says that marriage is only supposed to be between one man and one woman. And uh, yet the education system we see today says there's no God, that not, not everything evolved from um, inorganic matter, uh, somehow it jumped from, and they can't explain it, they jump from non-life to life, and that that marriage is just something people found to be convenient. It worked better for some than for others, and we have to recognize that people have all kinds of different mar- marriages between multiple people, multiple sexes, all kinds of different things. And so there's no re- not really any any absolute right or wrong. So how do we determine this as Christians? God is always right. 
So what happened when they began to teach evolution and it crept in, it, it developed over time. You, Darwin comes along and publishes Origin of the Species in 1859. Okay, that's, that's only been about a hundred and what, sixty, seventy years. But he was preceded, number one, in the ancient world, you all had this chain of being, continuity of being idea all, already present. But you had um, secular scientists who hated Christianity as far back as the late 1600s who started to look at geology and say, you know, it looks like the Earth's a lot older than just the six or 8,000 years that everybody believes because of the Bible. And then they began to come up with certain ways to figure out how old the rocks were. And the rocks were a certain age because of the fossils that were found in it. But how did you know how old those fossils were? Well, because of the rocks that they're found in. Well, wait a minute. You just said you know how old the rocks are because of the fossils that are in them. So what? That, that's circular reasoning. And when you stand up on circular reasoning, you collapse. It's kind of like what happens when you fall out of an airplane. Nothing will hold you up. But that's the whole system of, 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 of the dating in geology. And so what happened is that through the 1700s, people began, scientists, so-called, began, and they're really operating on a philosophy, not a science. And they're starting to say that the earth is several thousand years old. It's not till much later that it gets to be uh, hundreds of millions or billions of years old, uh, but they just figured, okay, if you have enough time, anything can happen. But that's, that's false. If you have enough time, nothing's going to happen that's not already happening. So there were three ways that churchgoers decided to handle this alternate view of creation. The first way was just to say, well, we're going to have to change. Genesis must be wrong. Science is right. Coming out of the Enlightenment, science seemed to be God. Science seemed to be able to answer all of the issues in life. So we can trust science. They have all the answers. And so science was elevated in authority over the Bible. Now, what is science based on? It's based on human knowledge. Science means knowledge. It's from a, from a Latin word meaning, meaning knowledge. And so that knowledge is organized by finite minds that don't, they don't know everything. And there were a lot of mistakes that were made along the way in science, but, but we don't talk about those things. So the first group just says, all right, we're going to go with science. So we have to, we have to rethink everything. Second group said, we can figure out a way to reinterpret the Bible so that we can accommodate whatever science comes up with. And so um, they put science and the Bible on the same level as you see in the middle, middle part of the diagram here. And then the third part is the Bible is the ultimate authority, so therefore the interpretation of what is seen... In the, in geology or in, um, in biology or whatever 
must be wrong. That doesn't mean I know all the answers. I don't know why it's wrong, but I know that the Bible is right. Because you're coming to the, to the raw data with an assumption as a Christian, or you should be coming with the assumption the Bible's true. I don't need to know all the answers. I just know that God's right. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't seek the answers and seek to understand it. But on the other side, the non-believers are coming with the same pre- with the opposite presupposition. A presupposition is a deeply held belief that you haven't really necessarily thought through, but you believe it so deeply and profoundly that even when it's challenged, you never question it. There was a man who was com- absolutely convinced that he was dead. And so he was sent to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist began to work with him and decided that he needed to convince him that his presupposition that he was dead was wrong. And so he said, do you believe that dead men bleed? He said, no, dead men, dead men don't bleed. And so he, they talked about this. They went to, um, they went to a mortuary where there were dead bodies and they, uh, pricked the dead bodies and they didn't bleed. Uh, they went and found some dead animals. They pricked the bodies. They didn't bleed. And so then the, um, the psychiatrist uh, secretly pulled out a needle and poked him in the arm and he started bleeding. And he said, how about that? Dead men bleed after all. Presuppositions control uh, without your, you've already bought into it. They just, control your your interpretive framework. So we're going to go through these tonight and see what they mean and examples of what they look like and then apply a biblical perspective to them. So in the first one, the issue is just we're going to surrender the truth because science is always right. Now, by the end of the 19th century, science was producing mass destructive weapons for war. And you had artillery shells that could go a mile or more. You had uh, machine guns. You had chemical weapons. And all of that was used in World War One. And this is what the end of modernism, that whole period was called modernism. And they realized science didn't have all the answers. And that led to postmodernism, uh, not back to the Bible necessarily. So in... In the scientific view or scientism, it's really a religion. You understand the world only through science and only through the natural elements. So it's also called um, naturalism. There's no God, there's no supernatural, just naturalism. So naturalists reject the supernatural way that God created the universe as it's described in Genesis. They just their, their presupposition is that's impossible. That can't happen. They reject that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Even Genesis through Deuteronomy, Moses didn't exist. Not, and we heard um, Aaron Lipkin when he was here back in the beginning of, of uh, July talking about he had grown up believing the Old Testament was true. And then he goes to high school and college in Israel, and he's taught that Moses never existed, Joshua never existed, there was no conquest, there was no uh, parting of the Red Sea, there's no Mount Sinai. And and I was taught that when I was in Western Civilization course in my freshman year at uh, at college. 
that Moses didn't live and he didn't write Genesis and all of this couldn't happen. So uh, they reject that. Third, they reject the account of creation and the fall, claiming that they aren't real. These are just moral stories. They're fables. They're stories we tell to teach a moral principle. And this is one of the problems with most published Sunday school curriculum is they reduce these stories to simply uh, morality stories that look at David. He's a brave boy. Look at, look at Joseph, how, uh, how, how, uh, wise and faithful he was even in hard times and you go through all of these different different stories and it just boils down to morality rather than teaching spiritual principles fourth adam and eve aren't real people they reject that that in fact for many years there was the view of what they call a polygenesis Polygenesis meant that evolution occurred. Poly means many. So you had beginnings of the human race in different places. You had, uh, what is it, Australopithecine, and you had Peking man, which later turned out to be a hoax. But you had these Neanderthal man, that was just a human with rickets and vitamin deficiencies. Uh, but they thought they were, they, they, you had different, pe- dif- different evolutionary Development, so you had the beginnings of human beings in different areas, but that led to racism because some of those were were black people, and they weren't uh, they weren't as intelligent or as capable as white people, and so that became known as social Darwinism, which is re- truly the most consistent view based on the presuppositions of Darwinism. But Hitler used that. And it led to the Holocaust. So what is taught now is that polygenesis can't be true. Why can't it be true? Because look what it leads to. So that can't be true. See, it's philosophical. It's not, none of it's based on evidence. They reject the fact that many uh, stories in the Old Testament that claim to be history are not history. They're just myths and origins like Greek mythology or Egyptian mythology. And last, they do not believe that the lake of fire is real or there's a God or there's eternal punishment. So when they surrendered the truth, this began in the period of the uh, 1700s. As science was developing, coming out of the Enlightenment, science is prioritized over the Bible, and then theory of evolution in 1859 with Darwin, and what you see is just this surrender of many churches, and that led to what became known as, as liberal Protestant theology. It affected the Roman Catholic Church as well. And part of the problem was is that schools were not teaching students to be truly critical thinkers. I've heard a lot about critical thinking in public schools, which scares me, because for them, critical thinking is thinking according to whatever the vogue philosophical system of the day is. Now, I know there are exceptions to that because you have good teachers in places, but generally speaking, what that means is to think in terms of the uh, current uh, woke philosophies, the current critical race uh, theory and all of those things, not thinking in terms of objectivity. So in the uh, early years up until the mid-1900s, 
1800s rather, schools focused on skills, language, math, science, things that were objective and things that helped you become a productive member of society. But they didn't teach how to question the origin of ideas. And you've heard me say this before. I remember when I first went to seminary and I knew uh, a student at Dallas Bible College because several of these students had been counselors at Camp Penile. And this guy was graduating, and he was going to go to the University of Texas at Dallas and get a, de- get a graduate degree in the history of ideas. I had never heard of that before. But that is so important to understand where ideas come from because ideas have consequences. And when you study the history of ideas, you see where those idea, where the consequences that those ideas lead to. So we have to teach children how to evaluate ideas. And in evolution, so what we have here is a chart that is a tremendous chart to use contrasting evolution with with genesis so how can we get the how can we meld these things together they're polar opposites uh evolution starts with gas or matter something like that that's eternal and genesis starts with the personal infinite creator god sun and stars are formed by chance before there's ever an earth or there's ever life on the earth. But in Genesis, it says that the sun and stars are created after life started on the earth, the fourth day. Uh, Life evolved from the sea, according to evolution, but life was first created on land, according to Genesis 1. Uh, Birds evolved with mammals after fishes are formed. So by evolved, we don't mean they jumped species or families, but because a bird adapted, God is brilliant. He created ad, uh, a degree of ad- adaptation in all creatures so that they could uh, adapt to their environment. But it's still a fish. It's still a moth. It's still a fruit fly. It hasn't gone from fruit fly to baboon. Then you have uh, rain occurred millions of years before man in evolution, but rain doesn't occur until after, until the time of the flood, long time after man's created. Evolutionary processes, according to evolution, continue today, though no one has ever seen it. There's no evidence of it. Uh, creation is complete, and God turned off the processes that he used in Genesis 1. Life differs in degrees so that cats and rocks and people are ultimately from the same same thing. They're just their protons, electrons, and DNA are arranged differently. But the Bible teaches that there are fundamental differences in what the Bible calls kinds, which is probably, according to the taxonomy that's used, probably at the family level, not the species level, a little higher up than that. Uh, death, sorrow, tears, pain are normal in evolution. They're the means you advance. So death is good. Pain is good. It's survival of the fittest, but that never explains the arrival of the fittest in the first place. Uh, in Genesis, God created everything good. Death, sorrow, tears, pain, all came after the fall, and they're abnormal. 
And then last, evolution uses death to bring life. The Bible teaches that life descended into death uh, because of sin. So in that first category, we surrender the tr- we surrendered the truth response, and uh, we learn and accept only what the world uh, teaches. Just we learn only from the natural elements. There's no revelation. There's no uh, there's no God. Uh, everything starts and ends with man, and we it rejects anything supernatural or spiritual. But for the believe, uh, and then in terms of the Bible, he just gives up on the Bible that the Bible isn't even a good morality book. Okay, so that takes us to the second one: the accommodate and reinterpret the truth. Now, a lot of us heard variations on each of these probably as we were growing up in the mid-20th century. And uh, this is where you see, well, science is probably right. It's coming up with these certain ages, and it's coming up with uh, certain other ideas, and we just uh, can figure out how that fits with the Bible. So we're going to figure out how to ram, cram, and jam scientific conclusions into the Bible. So they're going to mix this toxic brew together to avoid the literal meaning of the text so that they can come up with something that is not too challenging to the culture around them. So this presupposition is still that science is never wrong. And when you believe that, you, you, you get what we had with COVID, and yet tables get turned and people who didn't, who were questioning a lot of the things that were going on in the development of COVID and in the response to COVID were called people who just weren't following the science. And now a lot of evidence is coming out that now the people who were saying you're not following the science weren't following the science. So, and that, uh, in this chart, science is never wrong means that some of the Bible contradicts science. But if you really understand science, the Bible's never going to understand science because who invented science? God. And so the Bible is telling us things. It's amazing. There are books on uh, creation, uh, creation science, that lists hundreds of discoveries that came about because of people who read it in the Bible. They understood that the earth was a round globe because in the Bible it talks about the sphere of the earth. And you get to other passages that talk about the paths of the sea, and one man read that and and discovered currents in the oceans. And there are hundreds of examples like that because they took the Bible literally and then discovered something. So uh, their assumption is, that science, since science is never wrong, some of the Bible contradicts science, therefore we must have misunderstood the Bible. Well, wait a minute, maybe you should have misunderstood the serpent. Oh, science. And their conclusion is we need to reinterpret the Bible. And that goes on in, in so many seminaries. Today, I can name you that almost every evangelical seminary that was on target 60 years ago has caved in these areas. 
and the average life of an Orthodox seminary is about 75 years. But um, uh, when I went to Dallas Seminary, there wasn't a faculty member there that was known that that um, that believed in anything other than a young Earth six day creation. That is not true anymore at all. So we have to figure out ways to, maybe we need to reinterpret the Bible in a few places so that it fits with what science comes up with. All right, so you have science and the Bible are somewhat equated, um, and then in the first view, and then uh, Bible, the Christian surrender to science. In this view, science and the Bible are viewed equally, but they're always going to give the edge to science. It's still... Uh, leads to accommodation. Now, remember, science, the word means knowledge, and it's knowledge that is acquired through the use of a particular method, and that method is a combination of empiricism or observing things. You're looking at at certain things, and then uh, you look at, for example, as uh, Newton is... Uh, watching a uh, uh, an apple fall from the tree, and then there's a much smaller mass uh, nut that falls from the tree and falls at the same rate. So he's got to form wh- wh- what's causing them to always fall in the same direction. So he formulates formulates a hypothesis that it has something to do with the mass of of the object. And he, from there he gets to his conclusion with gravity, but first he has to form a hypothesis. Then he has to experiment with it and go through various different experiments to, to develop that and then reach a conclusion. But in, in evolution, uh, no hypothesis related to evolution uh, could have been tested because nobody's ever observed it. Nobody can, redu- can duplicate it in the laboratory. So it is not science, it's a philosophy. You can't experiment because it's not possible. Nobody's ever ever been able to duplicate it. And then the conclusion, you know, you can't reach a conclusion that's ver- verifiable because you can't uh, repeat it. It's not repeatable. So this led to the one, one attempt, which was that there are gaps in the biblical genealogy of Adam. Now, this is based on the fact that there appears to be a gap, and one person is inserted into the genealogy of Christ in Luke 4 that does not appear in the genealogy in Genesis 5. His name is Canaan. Now, there are several legitimate explanations of this. It could have been a scribal error because there are two Canaans. Uh, There's one Canaan that is listed in Genesis 5, but not at the same location. So uh, a copyist I could have, you know, missed the line and duplicated that name uh, unintentionally. There are several other solutions, and I'm not going to go through through all of them, but there are several other solutions. But that's only one person in a list of quite a few. And it only results in about a 100 or 150-year difference. But what, what they say is, oh, there was one gap, so there must have been hundreds of thousands because we need millions of years. 
So you'd have to have hundreds of thousands of people left out. And these are just a representative few. But that really doesn't work if you look at the text. The text says, Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So even if the word son could mean grandson or great-grandson, that grandson or great-grandson is born when Adam is 130 years old. Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 are the only two genealogies in the Bible that put numbers in there. And the numbers make it unbreakable. Because no matter whether it's one, two, or three generations, Seth is born when Adam is 130 years old. And it's the birth age of each individual that you add up to get your chronology. So after he begat Seth, the the days of Adam were 800 years. He had sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. So this is real easy. You take 130 plus 800 and it equals 930 years. And so you can actually graph, graph this out. But another interesting observation is the second theory we're going to look at is the day age theory, which each day represents uh, tens of thousands of years to fit the geological ages. But the problem is, if Adam was created on day six, then day six would have to, to be consistent, would have to be several tens of thousands of years long. So that when the Bible says that Adam died at 930 years, that would be a lie because he would have probably 90,300 years. If those age day ages, I mean, those days were really tens of thousands of years long. goes on and says, Seth, in verse 6, Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. So Enosh is going to be born 130 years when Adam is 130 years old when Seth is born. And then 105 years later is 235 years from Adam's creation. A lot of people start with, well, he fell, so that's when you start counting. No, it isn't. When did God start counting? Day one. It was morning and it was evening the first day. That's when it started counting when Adam's created on the sixth day. Five days later, it's the... What? It's the 11th day, but it's Adam's fifth day. And so you just keep counting from there. You don't count from the day the sin fought. There were clocks working, calendars were. There was counting on morning and evening was day one, morning and evening, day two, etc. So now we can, we can draw it out. So that's what people have done. Now, and uh, this chart shows the age range and that when Noah... Uh, when Lamech is born here, uh, this is when, I'm losing my pointer, there we go. Okay, we have a red line going down here. This is when Lamech is born, and then he dies at 777 years just prior to the flood, which would occur in 1656. Noah was 600 years old when God warned him. So you can develop that. And there's there's uh, there's no gaps in those genealogies. I had a seminary professor one time 
And I know his view, and his views changed, and I haven't had a chance to track him down and ask him because he, he had done his doctoral dissertation on the Table of Nations. And I asked him one time, I said, are there any gaps in the genealogy? He says, exegetically, there can be, you can not find any gaps in the genealogies. But we got a problem because of archaeology. No, the problem is with how we're interpreting the archaeological data. So anyway, the first attempt was to put a lot of gaps in there so you can get hundreds of thousands of years. The second example I call the old earth gap view because the idea that there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 has been around for hundreds of years. John Milton held that view when he wrote Paradise Lost in the mid-1600s. By the way, he was blind and he recited that, dictated it all from memory. If you ever tried to read it, it's a book this thick. But that, that was his view. Uh, so my view is that it's a young earth, that it didn't take, take long for Satan to fall. It didn't take long for any of these events to happen. The only reason we think it took hundreds of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years is because some secular geologist who hates Christianity and the Bible said so, and his data is wrong. But we don't have time to go into all of that, but there are lots of books, and the curriculum gives you some good sources to go to study a lot of this material. But during this gap between 1-1 and 1-2, they're putting millions of years to get the fossils. So you have death and pain and killing and disease and thorns and suffering and struggle and extinction, all happening before sin. That's a real problem. The day-age view, we'll come back and address that in a minute. The day-age view is the idea that each day was really millions of years. The trouble is that the sun is created on day four, but millions of years have gone by since the time that plants evolved. Well, plants survive on photosynthesis. Without the sun, they're not going to last long. They might last four or five days or a week. My house, they don't last quite that long, so they have to have sunlight. So it's, it's all erroneous. And so we have to take these, for various reasons, as six literal 24-hour consecutive days. So that, that leads us to the problems. The first problem is death before the fall. When you're looking at that, that old earth gap view, uh, they, they proposed that there was a pre-Adamic race to explain the humanoid fossils and that there was... Um, uh, there was all this death to produce all these fossils, all these animals. But Genesis makes it, Genesis 3 makes it very clear that there's no disease, there's no death until God announces it in the curse after Adam and Eve sinned. Prior to that, there was no death. So you've got a real problem. Genesis 131, God looked at everything and says it was exactly as he intended it to be. And if he intended all that death, disease, and destruction, then we've got a problem with, with, with God. So the millions of years there were all characterized by misery. Genesis 3, 17 to 19, God outlines this part of the judgment to Adam, and he says, Because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat, Cursed is the ground for your sake and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, but thorns and thistles it shall bring forth future tense. 
You know, but according to the gap, the old earth gap view, and according to the day age view, this was already going on. And so at the end he says, um, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That is the first indication of physical death. It's the consequence of spiritual death. But it doesn't occur until after Adam and Eve had sinned. It's not already there. God would be punishing Adam with something that was already normative otherwise. And that that collapses the whole salvation's narrative in Scripture. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So creation is good. It's normal. There's no uh, disease. There's no death. There's no destruction. There's no famines. Nothing like that. Then the fall, and then you have sickness and death and destruction and toil and misery until the judgment, and then that will end the curse. Next thing is that the Old Testament took the creation account literally. Uh, whenever it refers back to it, it refers to it in a literal way. New Testament does too. You look at Second Peter 3.8, which we studied not long ago. Uh, but, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So I've heard Christians say, well, see, that tells us that those days in Genesis were may have been a thousand years. No, it doesn't. Not if you look at the context. The context is talking about the timelessness of God and that when we say, God's, God, you're taking too long to do this, God it has his own timetable, and he's not in a hurry like we are. That's actually a quote or a reference back to Psalm 90, verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. And all that is is just a, it's just a metaphor. A thousand days is in your sight is like a day. It's letting us know that, that time, human, uh, human chronology, human metrics for time don't matter to God. He's eternal. In Genesis 1-5, we have the first reference to time. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Starts with evening, morning, the first day. Now here's one, and I've used this with some of my Jewish friends who don't talk to me afterwards because they can't answer my questions. Um, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You have a command, six days you'll labor and do all your work. But the seventh day on the Sabbath, okay, they believe that. I'm work six days, rest the Sabbath. Why did God give you that command? That's in verse 11. Four, because in, that's how God did it. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. But if those days are 10,000 years, then that means in 60,000 years the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them, and he rested on the Seventh 10,000 period. So that means that you don't have to ever rest in your life because you're not going to live 60,000 years. You can work 24-7 and never rest. The only way that makes sense is if the days that God had in his in the work week of creation were 24-hour days. The New Testament takes the creation account literally. 
And we see that Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus. He traces it all the way back uh, to to uh, Adam. And this is to show that that um, that Jesus is in the is the promised seed of the woman. And so this takes you all the way through uh, Genesis. Uh, Luke Luke believes the ge- genealogy in the Old Testament is uh, literal and and accurate. When you look at um, and remember, Luke is a historian. He tells us at the very beginning of Luke that he has interviewed everybody, he's talked to everybody, so that he can give a precise account of the life of, of Jesus. And that included research in the temple birth records so that he could um, trace it all the way back to the very beginning. And when you look at Luke 3.26, it says the son of Noah and then the son of Seth, and then the son of Adam. Adam was the son of God. So he traces it all the way back. And then we look at passages uh, in that relate to what Jesus taught. And Jesus took Genesis literally. And, for example, in Luke eleven fifty and 51, uh, Jesus said that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel. So he ties the blood of Abel, the death of Abel, to the beginning, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Zechari- the Hebrew Bible is organized differently. The last book is Second Chronicles. And the last prophet that is killed by the Jews in Second Chronicles is Zechariah. So he's saying it's from A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah. And that, that shows that Jesus, at that time, the Jews had the same collection of books that, that we have. And then later in Matthew 19.4, uh, Jesus said, I, must, I left this one out. Uh, Jesus said, uh, the Pharisees had came up with that bogus little skit. You know, you have a woman and she marries a man. The man dies. She marries his brother. He dies. And marries a third brother. He dies. Marries the fifth brother. All the way to the seventh brother. And then he dies. Whose husband is she? Well, it better be the DA so that she can get off because something's kind of smelly about this. So anyway, so Jesus' answer is, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's from Genesis 1. So people who said Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 were, came from two different sources and they contradict each other. Uh, Jesus didn't think that. He said, he said, uh, it's chapter 1, 26 and 27, he made them male and female. And then at the end of chapter 2, and I think it's 2.26, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus quotes one verse from chapter 1, one verse from chapter 2, to talk about uh, the creation of, of Adam and Eve. So he took Genesis 1 and 2 uh, literally. So if we disagree with Genesis, we disagree with Jesus. And if you disagree with Jesus, you just got to throw the whole Bible and Christianity and everything uh, out. Uh, Paul also t- took the uh, Old Testament literally. 
when he didn't, when he was using it as an allegory, he told us. In Galatians 4.22, he's going to refer to Abraham. Abraham has two sons. The first one was Ishmael, and the second one was Isaac. But Ishmael was the son of Hagar, the the slave woman. But Isaac was the uh, son of Sarah, who was a free woman. Now, he's going to contrast them because he's going to show that, see, Abraham did it the wrong way, following the flesh, not trusting God, and you end up with a uh, the child of slavery. And he's going to use that as a, an allegory for uh, slavery to the sin nature. And on the other hand, you have the Isaac, who's the son of the free woman, and you have freedom there, and that's a picture of the believer who is walking by the Spirit. So he says uh, these things are symbolic. He tells you he's using them as a as an allegory, which is actually what the Greek word means there, not just symbolic, but allegory. And he says this represents the two covenants. The one is the law from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, and uh, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And then he will go on to say the other is Sarah. So this is a, a little chart they have in the in the book to demonstrate this. The freeborn wife is a picture of trusting God and the miraculous birth of Isaac. God fulfills his promise. And on the right side, you have the slave uh, wife, Hagar, and the ordinary birth of Ishmael, man's attempt to get uh, a child on their own. So one is miraculous, representing the grace of God. The other is man trying to gain uh recognition and approval from God. I've got two more points to get to tonight, and we'll wrap it up very quickly. So E, the Bible took genealogies uh, seriously. So when it quotes from the genealogies of Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 in the genealogies of Jesus, it treats it as accurate history. And F is the problem of treating science and the Bible as equally valid. And that's where we're stopping tonight. And we'll come back next time and and start there because this creates the problem of looking at God's word as the same level of authority as man's word or Satan. Where does that lead and how should we as Bible-believing Christians, how should we respond to these assaults on the truth of the Bible? And that's what we'll focus on uh, next Tuesday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and get into uh, the the history of how things have gotten messed up in the last 200 years and how this has compromised the witness of believers and how it compromises actually the whole culture, which was originally built on the truthfulness of your word. So, Father, we pray that you'll help us to think through these things and have the curiosity to investigate and study these things even more. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.